the day on Monday, a mixture of clouds and some sunshine. Again, a slight chance for some rain showers. The high temperatures in the low 80s. Same story on Tuesday, mixture of clouds and sunshine, a slight chance for rain showers, high temperatures in the low 80s. It'll dry out on Wednesday and Thursday, mid-80s on Wednesday, upper 80s on Thursday. From the WCBM Weather Center, this is Tony Pan. Twenty-first Century Radio is sponsored by Hieronymus and Company. This is Talk Radio 680 WCBM. It's time now for award-winning 21st Century Radio. Here's your host, Dr. Bob Hieronymus. Hi, this is Steve Boone, bass player of the Class of 2000 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee, The Lovin' Spoonful. And you're listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Bob. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. This is the alleged Dr. Bob Ronimus, a lowly Ph.D. hanging out in this part of the universe. And, of course, our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Cordner. Our engineer is Jake Bryant. And thank you for all your kind words uh, for both the Discovery and History channels that we work for. I'm certain they'll be shown again. Two hours on both channels that probably be shown about 30 or 40 times this year. And also, friends, August the 16th, Ziggy Marley will rejoin us for an entire hour on 21st Century Radio to discuss his new album, Family Time. That's August the 16th. Well, nearly 300 of Barry Levine's full-color photographs, many never seen before, are all together for the first time in his new book, The Woodstock Story Book. With text written by, and I hope I pronounced this correctly, Lenan G. Sackett, the book presents a chronological account of that event. Barry Z. Levine's photographs have been included in several U.S. and European television documentaries and books celebrating the 2009 anniversary, including Woodstock, Three Days That Rocked the World, as well as the re-release of the Academy Award-winning film Woodstock. In addition to photography, Levine has worked as a writer, producer in advertising and film, video and theatrical production, and was the director of a video production studio in New York City. He has been a long-time independent political activist and is one of the founders of the All-Stars Project, one of the largest and most successful anti-violence programs for urban youth, for more information, you can uh, to read his blog, visit www.woodstockwitness.com. Lanan G. Sackett is a former cowpuncher, beauty queen, drag race champion, early childhood educator, and college VP. She was working with Head Start Parents in the inner city in the summer of 1969 and has become a dyed-in-the-wool woody. Levine and Sackett met online, fell madly in love, and recently married. They live on a mountaintop, not far from the Woodstock concert site. Welcome to 21st Century Radio, Barry and Lenan. Am I pronouncing your name correctly, Lenan? Hello? Hello. <laughs> Am I pronouncing your first name correctly when I say Lenan? Yes, you are. Thank you. Thank you. I don't want to mess that one up here. Oh, gosh. Barry, you there? Hi. Having a little trouble with our extension, I'm afraid. Okay, well, we're sharing one phone, Bob. Dr. Well, Bob. that seems to be the way life is generally, right? Yeah. 
<laughs> well, I heard. Boy, I just this is just amazing, Barry. Uh, you have just come back from Italy, and I understand you were fested for your photographic work at Woodstock. Please tell us about that. Well, uh, you're correct, uh, Dr. Bob. It was quite an honor. Um, we were honored by the Biograph Film Festival, which is the only festival in the world that focuses on biographies. And uh, our life was celebrated, actually, uh, for the photographic work, which I did at Woodstock. They created a Woodstock village. They had um, giant billboards in Milan, Rome, and uh, Bologna, the buses, uh Outside of the buses had photographs of mine, of Jimi Hendrix, of Max Yasger, of the couple in the pond, and uh, it was quite, quite a, a wonderful, wonderful experience. Well, that was, that's extraordinary. That really is. I didn't realize until more the last several years that Woodstock is huge in Europe and, and also in Japan and elsewhere. All around the world. All around the world, for sure, but I didn't think it was bigger in uh, Europe and uh, Japan than it is in America, but it is. Why do you think that is? Well, I think worldwide, uh, Dr. Bob, there are, I mean, this is obviously a simplification, but I think there's some truth to it. I think there are two seminal events that the world knows of in America. Uh, one, the tragedy of 9-11, and uh, the other, the Woodstock Festival, the uh, excitement, the innovation, the uh, uh, lack of inhibitions, the opportunity for uh, young people to come together uh, without any uh, quote-unquote adult supervision, without the societal uh, constraints and restraints, and to show to the world that uh, we could um, do what we had said that we wanted to do throughout the 60s, which was live outside in a different way than the uh, strictures of society permitted. And, uh, I mean, if you can imagine, Baltimore, I think, has about three-quarters of a million people, If uh, the, the whole Baltimore area. If you can imagine, you know, Harbor, uh, Baltimore, and most of the surrounding area getting together, and there not being one rape, one robbery, one murder, one battery, one assault, one carjacking. I mean, that, that's what happened at Woodstock. Well, you couldn't have a hundred people get together in the city of Baltimore with a case of beer and not have a fight. You couldn't. I mean, because alcohol does something totally different to you. Uh, I think I think that's true. And in fact, I don't know how familiar you are with the film that Michael Wadley made. He was the director, and I had a wonderful opportunity in Italy to reconnect with Michael, with whom I was close uh, forty years ago, and haven't seen in the ensuing period. But I had a wonderful opportunity to reconnect with Michael and his family, and also Artie Kornfeld, who was one of the, uh, called the father of Woodstock, one of the, with Michael Lang, the, the primary uh, organizers of the festival. And um, he, in his film, one of the, uh, I think it's the chief of police, said, is having this argument with some other townspeople, saying, oh, all these kids, you want your daughter to be doing these things so that, you know, and he says, look, if, you know, adults got together and with a case of beer, it wouldn't be this peaceful and this nice. So, Certainly not. Uh, you know, 40 years ago, and this was a quote-unquote straight member of society, the chief of police, in fact, of Bethel, saying that. So, 
Yes, I think that that's very true. And and it's remarkable in terms of the... Uh, this wasn't just one minute. This was like a whole week. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And well, and also under terribly adverse situations with not enough food, not enough water, not enough space, in, in pouring rain where you, there was no place you could go, in the mud, and yet uh, without proper or without enough sanitation facilities... And people didn't look to blame anyone and, you know, complain about it. We, and I, I say we because I was a part of it. I wasn't just photographing. I, I was a part of it. We accepted the responsibility for the situation and realized that the world was watching us and rose to the task of representing the best in, in what people are capable of, of doing. And that's such a rare occurrence. Rare? It, <laughs> come on, Barry, it doesn't happen at all. Well, it happened once. I know it happened Dr. once. Bob. It happened once. And, and that it, means it can happen again. That's the thing that's so good about it. Yes, that's for sure. Is Lenan there? Yeah, hold on. Yeah. Hi. Hi, Lenan. Dear, how, how did you and Barry get together? Uh, we met online. Uh, actually, I'm not a hippie, uh, or wasn't till I met him. Uh, <laughs> I was working in the inner city in Syracuse with Head Start mothers and fathers, and I was kind of skeptical about these guys up on the hill and thought they should be down in the cities helping us out instead of up there <laughs> doing what they were doing. But now I see the value of it. We met online, and uh, I Googled him to see if he was a serial killer or not, and uh, <laughs> discovered that he had these wonderful photographs, just wonderful photographs in a drawer that he'd done nothing with. And I thought, well, I don't know this guy very well, but these pictures really deserve to see the light of day. So mm -hmm. I made the website, and we started working together on the book and projects and fell in love. And so well, we kind of joked that we met and met at Woodstock and fell in love four years later and <laughs> got married. Well, when, a little later on, I'd like to ask you about some of those photos uh, because uh, some of them are extraordinary. They are uh, really extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, well, not some, but many of them are. But your titles, I love the way your titles have a sense of humor. <laughs> and I, we need that kind of thing today. Well, that's what we wanted to do with our book. We didn't want a book that uh, apologizes or, you know, needs to justify the, the 60s. And I mean, all of them do that to the point you want to gag. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we yeah. just wanted to say, enjoy this book and be there. You know. <laughs> yeah, well, it certainly it helps you be there. It helps you be there in many different ways, yeah. from all the way from the beginning. I like it when it's done chronologically. And I yeah. understand that there's a number of firsts in this particular book. Uh, uh, it's the only picture book which contains all color photographs. Many of the photographs have never before seen. I That's that right. Earlier. And, and, and also uh, the Barry, Barry Levine was the still photography photographer of this of course but he maintained his wonderful relationships with these people and that's not an easy thing to do yes he is he is a rare rare person and uh i think that the book has many uh firsts in it and it's the pictures are as they said at the biograph film festival they were originally looking to have multiple photographers represent the village and they said when they got studying barry's pictures they had heart and soul, and they were a single perspective, and they were all color. They hadn't been seen, 
and they were just rolled over. So you got the idea by discovering these photographs in his drawer? Yes, he had them in a file. Not in my drawers, Bob. (laughs) (laughs) How long ago was that? How long ago was that? We found another phone now that works, so look out. He's in trouble here. (laughs) Okay, well, that's fortunate. I'm I'm glad about that. But but So, Barry, how did you react when she brought this up? Did you really want to do it? To tell you the truth, I was kind of, you know, when you have something that for some reason... You kind of take it for granted. You just don't value it, uh, and and it it takes the perspective of someone else to make you realize what it is that you have, and that's exactly what happened with Lynn. She she said, "Well, I want to do a website," and I thought, "Gee, well, that would be nice to have a website." And she's such a talented person. She is the designer. To tell you the truth, uh, Doctor Bob, if I, I, I clicked the shutter a bunch of times 40 years ago. Lynn Ann has done everything else. She designed the uh, website. She designed the book. She's done 18 iterations of it, you know, in, in evolving the, the book. She cleaned every single photograph oh digitally uh, using Photoshop, removed scratches, dust, adjusted color. She, she knows the photographs better, better than I do because she's been over every inch of them. And and she said to me, after she did the website, I said, gee, <laughs> whose photographs are those? They look so good. And then she said, you have enough photographs here to do your own book. And I said, no, I don't really think so. I need others. Uh, she said, no, you have enough to do your own book. And I wasn't so easily convinced. But finally, uh, I, I said, okay, let's go for it. And uh, I was just amazed. I was just amazed. And not only that, she continues to amaze me. Um, we, we did a 27-minute slideshow. I had a three-hour presentation to do as part of the Biograph Film Festival, and it was a very, very well-attended workshop. I mean, the, the auditorium was just, uh, the theater was just full. And she did a slideshow, and uh, I said, well, Wait a minute, Lenan. How come you didn't use some of those pictures in the book? <laughs> yeah, what's wrong with you, Lenan? Well, wait, wait, we got to take a break here. When we get back, we've got to find out how you got to be the still photographer on this film crew, the kind of equipment you used, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, with our guests, Barry Levine and Lenan Sackett, the Woodstock Storybook, Channel Photographics, Brunswick. And unfortunately, she's written something up there which I cannot read. It looks like international, but it's not. Order at WoodstockWitness.com. WoodstockWitness.com, the Woodstock Storybook. If you're a business owner or executive seeking growth yet determined to cut wasteful costs, consider outsourcing your whole marketing department to The Selling Well. The Selling Well offers businesses truly superior marketing services without all the overhead costs associated with employing a full-time marketing executive. Learn more online at thesellingwell.com. That's thesellingwell.com, named after one of our greatest symbols of prosperity, the well. Visit thesellingwell.com or call The Selling Well's managing partner. 
partner, Plato Hieronymus, at 443-939-1890, thesellingwell.com. Researchers at Johns Hopkins are seeking volunteers with a diagnosis of cancer to participate in a scientific study of self-exploration brought about by psilocybin. Psilocybin is a psychoactive substance found naturally in mushrooms, which has been used for centuries as a sacrament for religious and spiritual purposes. Volunteers will be given careful preparation before receiving the psilocybin in a comfortable, supportive setting. Structured guidance both during and after the session will facilitate integration. This study complies with all FDA regulations. Please call 410-550-5990 or visit cancer-insight.org. Confidentiality will be maintained. That's 410-550-5990 or www.cancer-insight.org. Hi, this is Roseanne Cash, and you're listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Bob Hieronymus. I have uh, very seldom enjoyed an interview this much. Oh, really? Very <laughs> <laughs> Well, ditto. We germ. Holly has your bag with your medicine. Please meet at the information booth as soon as you can, please. Helen Savage, please call your father at the Motel Glory in Woodridge. Helen Savage, please call your father at the Motel Glory in Woodridge. And the warning that I've received, you may take it with however many grains of salt you wish, that the brown acid that is circulating around us is not specifically too good. Uh, it's suggested that you do stay away from that. Of course, it's your own trip, so be my guest, but uh, please be advised that there is a warning on that one. Thank you. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio with our guests Barry Levine and Lenan Sackett. Yes, I got that right almost. The Woodstock Story Book publisher, the hardback copy, is Channel Photographics Brunswick Institute. Please go to woodstockwitness.com, woodstockwitness.com to order it. Okay, Barry, how did you get to be the still photographer on this film crew? Um, it kind of was just a stroke of luck, a coincidence. I live... Uh, still about 30 miles from Wasak, uh, and at the time uh, my folks lived up state here, and I, I was working in the music business, and I came up to just look around. It wasn't clear that anything was going to happen. There's a lot of hype in the music business, as there is in other businesses. And uh, at the site, I happened to meet uh, Larry Johnson, who was an old friend, someone I had worked with, who uh, was later nominated for the uh, Oscar for Best Sound, on the film, and uh, he told me what uh, they were hoping to do was to make a documentary. He asked me what I was doing. I said I thought I was going to take, a, came up to look around, take a few photographs. He said, great, we need a still photographer for the film, but we don't have any money uh, to pay you up front because we haven't signed the deal yet. Will you do it? And I said, sure, Larry, and then I said the words that lead me to be talking to you tonight, Dr. Bob. I said, but I own the uh, negatives. He said, fine. And uh, we were off and running. Good businessman, boy. Uh, and also, tell us a little bit about the deal you had with uh, Life magazine. That was extraordinary. Well, I got all my my film provided to me uh, by, the, uh, by Warner Brothers. When they signed the deal on Thursday night, Friday morning, they flew in the 16-millimeter film for the film cameras and a brick of uh, 30 rolls of 36 exposure 
uh, ectochrome film for me, and they gave me the ectochrome film. And then after the festival, Life magazine uh, offered uh, not just me but all of the photographers there the opportunity to. Uh, they had a, of course, a, you know, a very very large lab because they were the picture uh, magazine to uh, process the photographs, all of all of the rolls of, of film at no cost for rights of first refusal, which they did. Well, that, that really was very kind of them, to say the least. Now, uh, well, it was an investment that they were making. Well, yeah, but sometimes investments don't go so well. Well, they did okay. That uh, magazine, that issue of Life magazine is still being sold on eBay. <laughs> it'll be forever. Sold. Yeah, it'll be forever. <laughs> Tell us about the equipment you use, please. I I I used only two cameras. Uh, I used a uh, Nikon uh, with a 600 millimeter uh, uh, lens that weighed about three pounds. It was a Zeiss uh, lens, very very fine quality lens, and um, I used a Pentax with several different lenses, mm-hmm. 55, uh, 100. Uh, fixed lens, and then a couple of others. Now, to both of you, I want to ask this question, because obviously you were both there. What would you think? Well, we weren't both there. Oh, you weren't both there. I'm a little confused. No, no, Lenan was in Syracuse. She was in Syracuse. Yeah, she was working in the inner city in the Head Start program. Okay, well, I can still ask both of you guys this question anyway. What do you think were the performance high points of the festival? Well, um... I, I, I mean, there were 30 acts, I think, or close to it, Dr. Bob. And some were, obviously, when you have that many acts over that period of time, given the circumstances, some acts are going to be better than others. But I, I, I think that, uh, it, it, to my way of thinking, and Lynn and I have discussed this, um, I would say there are three that represent the high points for me. One, obviously, there are others who are really good, but Richie Havens... Uh, started the festival. Um, he was one man and a guitar, and the because of the traffic jams, uh, it was supposed to start with bands, you know. But their equipment couldn't get to the festival site. I mean, the performers came in by helicopter, but the equipment had to come in by truck, so the equipment couldn't get to the stage in time. And they said, Richie, you got to go on, and he took it on himself to go out in front of uh, half a million people and start to play just one man with a guitar. And uh, he played for over three hours, and each time he thought he was through, they pushed him back on stage and said, No, Richie, you have to keep playing. And uh, he came up with the iconic uh, uh, Freedom, which is a, a variation on a Paul Robeson spiritual, old spiritual, uh, sometimes I feel like a motherless child, mm-hmm. and yeah. just... You know, did an incredible job facing up 500,000 people. I mean, in the film, if you watch him, he doesn't look up at the crowd. It's so daunting, I guess. Well, yeah. And he was daylight. He had to face them in the yeah. daylight. Some guys were at night. They had an advantage. He <laughs> couldn't see all the people. And then in the middle of uh, uh, some of the heaviest rainstorms when people were really miserable and not feeling so great to be sitting in the mud, jammed in like sardines. Um, Country Joe McDonald, uh, who was very active in the anti-war movement, and, and of course, you, you, ha- you must remember um, that Woodstock was an anti-war 
uh, gathering. That that was the common commonality against the Vietnam War, obviously. Um, uh, Country Joe McDonald uh, was on stage, and he just walked to the mic, and he started uh, the fish cheer, which everyone knew, and he shouted, Give me an F! And the entire audience uh, was uh, became a community again, coalesced, mm-hmm. and, and called back to him, and, and, and he went on to sing the... Uh, the uh, Feel like I'm fixing a die rag, which is also known as the fish cheer. Very anti-war song, very sardonic, and you know, come on, all you big strong men, Uncle Sam needs your help again. Got himself in a terrible jam way down yonder in Vietnam, and and he brought the whole crowd together, and and highlighted why folks were there. And then, of course, I would say the the, the closing act, uh, Jimi Hendrix, um, came on. Uh, after the night, uh, the, the Sunday night, he was, because he was the, uh, uh, insisted on being the closing act, he didn't come on until Monday morning, and uh, Sunday night the field was full of people as far as the eye could see. Monday morning, many of the people had gone, they had to go back to work, and there was, I say only, maybe 30,000 people left, mm-hmm. uh, if that. And, and Jimmy, the consummate performer, came out, Working with a with a band that he had never played with before publicly, had just broken up with uh, the Jimi Hendrix Experience, and he came out and he played a, just an incredible set of music, pretty much, you know, solo. And then he came up with the uh, the the Star Spangled Banner and did this incredible, incredible performance, creating the battle and you know the 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 what Francis Scott Key was writing about. And uh, Mike Wadley told me something very interesting This in Italy. He said that uh, by the time uh, Jimmy came on, uh, none of the uh, cameras but one were working, the 16-millimeter film camera. Oh. And Mike was using it, and he said Jimmy looked at him as if to say, you damn well better be getting this because I'm doing something that you're not going to ever see again. And, and and Wadley really felt that responsibility, and, and it was clear that he was creating something that was just awesome. It sure was. It sure was. I know he was, as you know, he wasn't happy with his group. He wouldn't even let them know what the last song was going to be, that kind of thing. And uh, fortunately, I got one of the guitars signed by his group. Oh, yes, I and, read about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So anyway, it was extraordinary. It was an extraordinary experience for all of us because, yeah, as you know, he was very patriotic. He was deeply patriotic. He was, right, a, uh, he was a paratrooper. Yeah. And, yeah. and Mike Wadley was so wonderful. He had just this one camera, and Jimmy went out of range and popped down, and Mike was going to try to follow him, and you know how hard that is with one eye and so forth. And he decided no. He held the camera straight, and Jimmy popped right back up in the same spot. And with one camera, he caught the whole thing. It's just incredible. Well, the some of the photographs in here of this crowd are extraordinary. And if we have time, we talk about the size of this nation here. And uh, on page 53, especially, I'm very, very happy with that because it's the only shot of uh, my bus in your car i mean in your car in your in this book oh uh, yes it's a but you can you it's not that it's not clear it's just that you know that that's the bus because the where it was sitting and the colors and that kind of thing yes but um the thing i wanted to want to ask about this and extru- 
that shot, you had your own helicopter, is that right? Well, uh, I, I was very fortunate, as I mentioned to you, to be working as a still photographer on the film crew, and I kind of adopted one of the cameramen, a man by the name of David Myers, who has since uh, passed away, unfortunately. And uh, uh, David is the one who shot the uh, the Portisan interview, mm-hmm. if you recall. Yes, you know, I remember that. The guy cleaning the toilets, the <laughs> yes. portable toilets. And I, I kind of hung out with David and uh, uh, did some of the interviewing uh, while he was shooting. I, I kind of acted as... Uh, the the role a sound man would do, uh, you know, when you go out uh, as a team of uh, cameramen and a sound man together, even though we weren't taking sound. And I interviewed some of the people, Joan Baez, uh, Filippini, who owned the pond, some other people. I'm in the film a bunch of times. But anyway, I tagged along with David, and he was given the assignment by Wadley to go up in the helicopter and, and get the shots from the air. And I just uh, hopped into the hel- helicopter with him, and uh, while he was shooting uh, out one side of the helicopter, uh, shooting film, I was shooting stills on the other side. Well, we're unfortunately, we're almost out of time, darn it. And there, I've got to ask about this one photo before we stop, producer, and that is photo on page 30. Uh, I'm sure, Lenan, you probably... Um, know which one this is. This is the one you titled, They Challenge the Codes, The Look of the Day. And it's it's the Filippini family. Now, this is not the Filippini family, or is it? It is. It is! So that's what they look like. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Actually, that's a frame, if you look at the, when you see the movie, it looks like it came right out of the movie. Mm -hmm. I mean, very right right behind the cameras that were shooting that shot. That's right. Now, of course, uh, it was the Mr. That's Mr. Filippini on the right. Now he is—he's not the one that that died seven days after Woodstock, is he? Uh, I, I, Dr. Bob, I can't tell you. I certainly hope he did. Well, he had a well, uh, one of someone who owned uh, this lake, who ran well, that was him. He owned the lake. He owned, yeah. Mm-hmm. He, and, it was called Filippini Pond. And and uh, he sat up with uh, his binoculars. And watched all the naked people. <laughs> I mean, he had a good. <laughs> said he had the best time of his life sitting up there. Well, well, we were there last Sunday, and and Barry was reminding me that he was the one with uh, the Myers photographer cameraman who started the nude bathing. <laughs> well, I'll be the cameraman started the bathing. Well, oh, maybe uh, that's what killed the poor guy. Uh, uh, well, no, he died with a smile on his face. I understand. <laughs> no, I mean seeing me taking my clothes off. Oh, but I said, well, no wonder you're going to put under arrest there. Now, do you, I, we've got time for one more question. That is, you think it could happen again, Woodstock? Well, I, I mean, yes, I do, uh, Doctor Bob. I do think it can happen again. Um, will it? Well, Lord knows, or whatever power there is knows. But, yes, I think it can happen again. I think that we can, as a people, come together. I think, uh, and, and I can't speak, I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but I think that the human spirit is, is, is resilient enough. And, and the, the one thing that Woodstock represented exactly was hope. And I think that's been in rather short supply. I think we're on the up uh, side of what was eight dark years. And uh, I think we have hope again, and I think that's the key element. I think we yeah. need 
We need hope the same way we need air to breathe. So I, I, think, I think it can happen again. And it is a happening, and it's not going to be planned by people who are making money. This is about people with hope who want to make a difference. Yes, I agree with that. Well, I want to thank you both for joining us. And by the way, friends, uh, the book, again, is the Woodstock Story book. It's published by Channel Photographics, Brunswick Institute. And you can order it right now from WoodstockWitness.com, WoodstockWitness.com. Thanks for joining us, guys. Thank you so very much. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Well, uh, friends, when we return, Stan Goldstein, the second person hired by Woodstock Ventures, who was instrumental in the planning, organization, design, and staffing of Woodstock 1969, will be joining us. Coming in from London, from over the Next week on 21st Century Radio, a medical doctor who discovers that past life therapy helps his patients heal and the ancient theology of Gnosticism as it is practiced today. Sunday night at 8, 21st Century Radio, Talk Radio 680, WCBM. Zoharonymous here. Do you ever wonder how biblical women dealt with stress? They experienced famine, war, lack of water, shortage of shelter, and inequality in their culture overall. But somehow, the seven prophetesses of Israel all rose to great leadership as a warrior, midwife, judge, royal queen, and more. Find out how you can be a queen. Kabbalah gives us all the tools for becoming the most we can be. Learn how to create peace in your life and love of others in your heart. Read my book, The Kabbalistic Teaching of the female prophets, the seven holy women of ancient Israel. Visit www.sevenholywomen.com. That's www.sevenholywomen.com. Or visit amazon.com to get my book, The Kabbalistic Teachings of the Female Prophets. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio, friends. And, of course, uh, would you like to win a free copy of the book we just talked about, Woodstock, the storybook by Lenane G. Sackett and uh, with photographer Barry Z. Levine, a chronologically and anatomically correct illustrated tale for post-Woodstock generations courtesy of the publisher Channel Photographics Brunswick Institute. Go to www.woodstockwitness.com. If you know the answer to this hour's trivia question, you're going to win that plus at least a dozen other books and periodicals. The question is, what was the name of our first guest on 21st Century Radio last week? You just tell us the name of our first guest on 21st Century Radio last week, and if you qualify, you will be the winner, but you need to qualify. Here's how to do it. If you know the answer to this hour's quiz question on 21st Century Radio and you have not won from us in the last 60 days, call in now. 410-922-6680. That's 410-WCBM680. First with the right answer wins. Prizes are available for you to pick up at the WCBM studios in Pikesville after Friday of this week. Winners have 60 days to pick up the prizes and must wait 60 days before winning another prize from 21st Century Radio. Good luck. All of them are going to be singing about the same thing, which I hope everybody who came came to hear. Really, 
and it's all about you, actually, and me and everybody around the stage and everybody that hasn't gotten here, and the people who are going to read about you tomorrow. Yes. Now, really groovy you were. All over the world. If you can dig where that's at, that's really where it's really at. Hi, this is Janie Hendricks, sister of Jimi Hendrix, and you're listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Bob Hieronymus. Oh, yeah. Hey, Janie will be joining us again on July the 26th, and Ziggy Marley rejoins us for an entire hour on August the 16th. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. Now, Stan Goldstein was instrumental in the planning, organization, design, and staffing of Woodstock 1969. Most significantly, he found and recommended the people who became most of Woodstock 1969's department heads, senior staff, and many contractors and primary vendors. The one candidates he presented for each position were all hired. It tells you something about how much, how much uh, he knew. He conceived of the activities that were so brilliantly executed by the hog form, which he sought out and recruited, and was the first Woodstock person to take up residence in Wallkill and led the effort that eventually failed to retain the permit for that show. His various titles were Chief of Staff, Organizer, Producer, Executive Headhunter, Campground Coordinator, among other less flattering things. But his favorite title was given to him by Chip Monk, which we will discuss a little later on. Welcome to 21st Century Radio, Stan. Well, thank you, Dr. Bob. How are you doing? I'm doing well, and thank you for all your help, Stan. You really have made a big difference in tonight's show especially. I appreciate that. My pleasure. Now, you suggest reading something about Woodstock 1969 and uh, try to develop a sense of the magnitude of that event. Wow. Uh, what was the magnitude of this event? Well, first of all, there were... There was some 800 acres occupied. Um, we had rented 600 acres, 650 acres from Max, and then we kind of spilled over into some that was rented and some not for another 800. But more than that, for nearly 20 miles in every direction, the roads were filled with cars, um, cars parked on the shoulders, cars occupying lanes, so that the roads were only could permit one car through um, in some cases. And everywhere those cars were parked, people, um, people had gathered. They were listening to their radios. They were making music. They were uh, um, having picnics. And so, and so it spilled, Woodstock spilled. 20 miles solidly in every direction, but more than that, the New York Thruway, for a distance of almost 100 miles, was closed all the way back to New York City because with all of that jam, people were still trying to get there, despite radio messages, not to come, not to come, you can't get there. And so the, um, the geographic um, effect of Woodstock forget for a moment the, um, all the other impacts, the geographic effect. People from New York could not travel to upstate New York. Mm -hmm. The New oh, York Thruway was closed. Well, before Woodstock 69, there were no models for such an entrepreneurial venture, and uh, that many 
formalities, uh, as you noted, were shunned by some of the folks in charge and by many of the people who worked on it. What did that result in? Because, boy, I learned so much from the material that you sent, but we're going to touch on that later on. But what did this result in, this um, lack of formalities there in the beginning? Well, I'm, uh, I'm not certain I, I have, a, have a simple... Um I have a simple, direct answer to that. Um, you know, the uh, I think more than anything else, the uh, um, the realization was that we, the staff, we, the contractors, we, the folks who were working, um, were in reality no different from the people who were attending, except that we were perhaps a bit older and had um, some special skills. Or just happened to, uh, you know, make the t- right telephone call early enough to have been involved with it. But if we wanted to know what the what our attendees needed and wanted, all we had to do was study ourselves. Well, and you. S- a, uh, um, and I think that in that in that way that we all could relate to one another, um, and that the, uh, the what's traditionally called the fourth wall in uh, in the entertainment industry, the wall that exists between the characters in a movie and the audience, between the characters on a, people on a stage and the audience, dissolved at Woodstock. As you note, uh, public safety was considered to be one of your most serious issues, and you really tackled this uh, head-on, especially in what you looked for in people who you wanted to hire. Could you tell us a little bit about the criteria that you used for hiring these people? This was extraordinary. I had never heard of this before. Well, that's, that's very nice of you to say so. Um, I could recommend to you that you, uh, um, at some future time, talk to, uh, to talk to one of the folks that worked with us on Woodstock, a fellow named Mel Lawrence. Um, some of what I did or some of what I conceived of Really relied on his earlier work at some at Newport Festival, Newport in California, that uh-huh. is, and Magic Mountain Festival in California. But leaving that aside, it was clear to me, and then it became clear to um, to the producers who permitted me to exercise my imagination um, that if we were inviting um, folks out to the country where the um, normal um, support functions simply didn't exist. If we were inviting people to come camp and recognize that um, most folks who would be coming, while they um, perhaps were taken up with the back-to-the-land movement and ideas of simplifying, most had probably never, ever camped before, never slept under the stars, and so would come poorly prepared and that we had an obligation to somehow um, take care of them, and take care of them in, in many ways. Um, we had to show them how to camp. We had to show them how to relate to one another. We had to, um, we had to recognize that people were going to come without, um, without means, that, uh, that it was an attraction and because we attracted people to this to the community, um, that we then had to we had the burden of taking care of them rather than 
causing the community, the, the town in which we were located, and the neighbors, um, we had to take care of them and provide for them. And if they were hungry, we had to feed them. Well, I must um, say, I must that, say, I got to tell you something, Stan. I'm, I'm sorry? I must say this, Stan, that, that I now understand uh, why there was so much love and understanding between all these people. Listen to this. Listen to one of the things he wanted to make sure these people. He said he wanted uh, people to listen, trust, and act as though ordered, but without resentment. You note, call it leadership, call it charisma, whatever you call it. Um, and he noted, of course, we'll touch on Chip Monk a little later on. But I think that was a very firm foundation upon which to build. And I think it made a great deal of difference. Now, you probably think I'm exaggerating, but I don't think so. No, I don't, I don't think so. Look, I pat myself on the back sufficiently to have had the, you know, the, the smart, the where, whatever it took to envision that kind of function. But it couldn't have happened without, first of all, the, um, the producers agreeing to pay the cost of installing that kind of thing. My, my fellow, you know, um, workers, my co-workers, to whom this was an odd idea, but who you know, kind of accepted it, saying, you know, Goldstein's a little bit weird, but sometimes he has a good idea, so let's let it go. For Wes Pomeroy, who was who was a career cop and became our chief of security, who really investigated to see whether such a concept could work and to incorporate it. Um, you know, so it wasn't just me. And then, you know, the, good, the really good luck was that the hog farm, the communal group, um, didn't think I was totally nuts and, uh, and was intrigued by the idea and agreed to come help us and... Um, they were the perfect, absolutely the perfect group. Let's um, let's stay on the hog farm here because I think the again is extraordinary. You noted that Woodstock '69 changed the music industry, and that although many uh, of the hired and volunteer help wore various colored T-shirts and jackets to identify them, not so the hog farm. Uh, to correct this serious oversight, the hog farm created buttons and the red rag. I enjoyed this to no end, learning this, because um, tell us a little bit about how did the red rag come about and what was painted or printed on it? Well, the, uh, as you've already mentioned, there was, because the hog farm were not quite really employees, they were of the festival, but they were not of the staff. Um, and so there was no, they, they didn't have t-shirts, they didn't have jackets, there was no unifying, nothing to identify the hog farm, and it was uh, sorely lacking. Um, so um, we bought a large quantity of, uh, of a particular red cloth, all that was available in the area. Um, Paul Foster, a rather remarkable guy, um, drew a, a picture, an outline, of a, uh, of a hog with wings, a flying hog. Oh, it was about four inches high and perhaps six inches long. And from that, we made a silk screen. And then using that silk screen, we um, imprinted, um, I don't know how many, certainly hundreds. The number may have been 1,000, 1,200, 50. I don't know how many of these, um, of these ribbons we made, about four, four inches wide, imprinted with this, hog, with this flying hog. 
And those were passed out to all the folks that were part of the hog farm and all those folks who volunteered and became part of the greater hog farm, working in the kitchen, working in the medical tents, working in the trip tents, um, supporting the crowd, um, passing out food, whatever, whatever activity people did uh, voluntarily to, um, to help their neighbors um, under this great banner of the hog farm, if you participated, if you scooped food, you got a, you got a, a, a red rag. If you um, talked people down in the trip tent, you got a red rag. And, uh, and that became an, an all-access pass for the, all the, the entire festival grounds. An all-access pants pass. And the idea was, yeah. if, we didn't run out of, if we didn't run out of rags, and the festival lasted long enough, eventually everyone there <laughs> would have participated, <laughs> would have been involved, oh, and, and would have been given a rag if we had had enough. Oh, that just, that's terrific. And then, then again, the hog farm brought in some, uh, it's button maker. Uh, but, but before I leave the, the red rag, uh, I got to touch on this. This is just gorgeous. In, in 2006, a reunion on October 23rd, 24th, at which um, Woodstock movie was screened. You also created the red rag, but you altered it a little bit. How's that? What did you do to it? Well, the, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, the uh, the people who give out the Oscars, um, has screenings. Um, continuously of films that have um, been nominated or, in fact, have won Academy Awards. And uh, they were doing a series of screenings of Academy Award-winning documentary films, and Woodstock, of course, being one of those. Um, but the, ordinarily what they do is they show the documentary short and the documentary feature, and after each of the films is shown, there's a little sit-down with whomever, um, the, the director, the cinematographer, um, folks that participated in the making of the film. We have around... The stock was unusual in that, first of all... We have to stop right here, unfortunately. We'll have to come back to this uh, next hour and touch on when, this. When you come back, could you do me a favor and yes. crank up your volume a little bit? I'd yes, really sir. Yes, sir. I'll do that, sir. Thank you very much. And we'll be back with Stan Goldstein, Woodstock's second employee with almost as many titles as he has stories to tell. And, yeah, we still got to get to that question as to what he was called by Chip Monk. He was the campground coordinator and the overall go-to guy. We'll be back in just a few minutes. We are stars. We are We are Radio 680, WCBM, Baltimore. From ABC News.